Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Lovely to see you all again on our daily show. It is June the 2nd, 2021. It's morning in California. Uh, early afternoon on the East Coast, early evening in Europe, and later evening in the Middle East. Hope uh, you're all well. Uh, the news today is all too often Islam is in the news. And um, unfortunately, um, when it's in the news, it tends to be for rather, shall we say, uh, troubling reasons. Uh, one piece of news today is that Boris Johnson, who often puts his foot in his mouth, um, has offered a, a qualified apology for Islam remarks. He's made all sorts of remarks about um, Islam, about uh, fe uh, uh, female Muslims and, and, and various other things. Um, crossing Europe, the Austrian minister for uh, integration, that's an interesting term, an interesting office, um, has defended her government's Islam map, uh, which has, of course, um, created a great deal of controversy and concern within the Muslim community in Austria. Um, and the Council of Europe has asked Austria to retract this contentious Islam map. It's a, a map that identifies Muslim communities within Austria. Austria, of course, is is, uh, is not really distinguished, I think, for its openness or toleration. Uh, meanwhile, uh, all sorts of other things are happening within the Islamic tradition. Uh, the, uh, the Economist magazine reports that gay people are reclaiming an Islamic heritage. Many people believe that uh, Islam is somehow intrinsically opposed to homosexuality. According to The Economist, that isn't the case. And moving on, Lindsey Graham, one of Donald Trump's main henchmen, is in Israel. Uh, and um, he, in a meeting with Bibi Netanyahu, uh, described Israel as the eyes and ears of America when it came to defending against, in his language, radical Islam. Um, so, uh, and, and, and finally, last but not least, uh, more and more controversy on the world social network, Facebook. Um, there's a, a, a legal suit seeking to limit uh, anti-Muslim speech on Facebook, which has become a platform for the distribution of all sorts of lies about Islam. Uh, so what that all says, I think, is that Islam remains both an extremely controversial and much misunderstood religion, particularly in the West. Uh, that's why uh, I have invited um, Sumbol Ali Karamali, who uh, has made a career out of demystifying Islam. Uh, she has a new book out, Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. Uh, Sumbol, welcome. Uh, I know you are in uh California somewhere. Uh, yes, but you. what do you make of all the various controversies that I talked about in, in Europe, the Boris Johnson stuff, the stuff going on in Austria? 
um, Marie Le Pen's continual rise in the polls. I know you're based in California and your focus is mostly as a writer being um, Islam in America. Are you concerned with what's happening in Europe? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and I'm so pleased to be here. Uh, and yes, it is a series of depressing headlines that you just showed everybody. But yes, it, it, of course, I'm concerned. Um, you know, Muslims are almost a quarter of the world's population, which most people don't realize where the Islam is the second largest religion in the world. And so um, I often think that if we were all terrorists, we would have taken over the world by now. So we're not. So we're not all terrorists. Um, I think what is happening, you know, Boris Johnson's remarks, uh, Marine Le Pen, these people are um, perpetuating a tall tale bogeyman version of Islam. And this is really consistent, Andrew, with something that has been going on for over a thousand years. Um, there's a long historical tradition in uh, Europe and America, started in Europe, of seeing Muslims and Islam through the eyes of the enemy. So um, medieval Christians, for example, didn't know any Muslims. You know, when Islam was born in the seventh century, Europeans didn't know about Muslims. Obviously, Muslims didn't live in Europe at the time. Um, they knew it was spreading fast. They considered it a false religion. You said yeah. Muslims didn't live in Europe, what, in the seventh century? In the seventh century. So Islam was born in the seventh century. Right. So, and it was born in what is now Saudi Arabia. So obviously there weren't any Muslims at that time um, in Europe. And so Europeans saw this faraway phenomenon of a new religion being born. They thought of it as a cult religion, which all religions think religions that come after them are cult religions, false religions. So they thought of Islam as a false religion. Islam spread fast, and so they were understandably afraid of it. Um, but there was no contact, uh, really, except on the battlefield. And so in um, European historical tradition, there grew up this huge mythology of tall tales about Muslims and Islam. We were Muslims were characterized as having purple skin or or blue skin or or black skin. Um, they were they were called you know the Antichrist, demons, all sorts of sort of mythical, horrible, monster-like things, and um, that attitude has invaded our, I should say, infused our historical narratives, our arts and culture, um, what we see now in film and in the current events and in television is just really those same old, you know, historical attitudes and stereotypes that are being played out um, in the in the modern world. It's not unlike anti-Semitism. So, do you think that the, the reverse is true as well? I mean, do these things work both ways that just as, um, uh, to borrow a term from uh, the the scholar Edward Said, just as Christians have orientalized Islam, so uh, Muslims have orientalized Christianity. So Muslims, historically, throughout the 1400-year-old history of Islam, Muslims have certainly um, um, you know, battled or conflicted with other religions, um, but they have not harbored the same kinds of tall tales. And the reason is because Islam accepts Judaism and Christianity as part of its own tradition. 
Also, uh, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, had Christian relatives. He had Jewish allies. Um, the Quran says that Muslims can marry Jews and Christians. Jews and Christians are considered believers in Islam. Other monotheists as well are considered believers, not infidels. They're believers who have a hope of heaven if they do good deeds. Um, in fact, there's a, a specific Quranic verse that says any you know, Jews, Christians, Sabians, other monotheists, any who believe in God um, uh, will go to heaven if they, good, if they do good deeds and are conscientious. So um, they didn't, so Muslims historically didn't harbor the same kinds of tall tales. Um, there's a Stanford professor uh, who says that, he writes that up to half of Christians in the medieval world lived under Muslim rule. So Muslims knew all about Christians and Jews. They lived with them. They integrated with them. They married them. Um, but we don't have those Christian records because those Christians wrote in Syriac. And until recently, Western scholars didn't understand Syriac. So instead, our records of Muslims come from uh, European Christians who wrote in Latin and Greek. And so, and only met Muslims on the battlefield. So we don't, until recently, we don't really, we haven't had those records of the of the Christians under Muslim lands who who spoke and wrote in Syriac, who told a very different story of, um, you know, a, a pluralism. You know, human beings who they are, of course, it was never perfect, but there was a pluralism under Muslim lands that was absent in other places. Well, let's move on to the book, Sumbal. Uh, de demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. In the book, you present Sharia as um, essentially the the heart of, of of the faith. What exactly is it? What does it mean? So, you know, um, when my first book came out, I I hardly talk about Sharia. I think I have a paragraph defining it because it's an academic term and nobody was talking about it. This was 2008. But then 2010, it was amazing. You know, Anti-Sharia protests erupted everywhere. And I thought, what is going on? In fact, I was at, um, I was at my Stanford reunion and we had, they had a alumni authors event at the bookstore. And there I was standing next to a pile of my books and uh, an older couple there for their 50th reunion came up to me slowly and said, you know, we're very much afraid that Sharia is taking over the United States. And I said, it can't because we have a constitution. The First Amendment's establishment clause prevents any religious law from taking over the United States. So it can't. And they said, Rush Limbaugh says it can. And they walked away, obviously, without buying a book. So um, I, I hope they weren't graduates of Stanford, Sumba. They, they were. They were there for their alumni graduation. Well, that's, you know, I'm a Berkeley person, so that doesn't exactly surprise me. So, so let's get back to Sharia. What exactly is it? Yes. So the, one of the problems with defining it is that it doesn't have a fixed meaning. So Sharia literally means the road to the watering place. In religious terms, it means the, the path of righteousness, the path that you want to be on in order to be a good person and to follow the way of God. So you can think of it as Sharia is the way of God. Now, for um, it's not law. Sharia law is something that's sort of a Western construct. Nobody calls it Sharia law. Um, Sharia is not law the way we think of law, which is rigid and enforceable. It is a mass of interpretive guidelines um, on religion, mostly having to do with personal conduct. 
if I have five seconds, what I say is loosely, Sharia just means Islam. What happened is that um, early Muslims in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, when they were trying to figure out, well, what is the way of God? You know, what is the path of righteousness? How do we get onto that path? They started looking at the religious texts in Islam, which are the Quran, the holy book, and the words and deeds of the prophet Muhammad. They looked at those uh, to see what they were supposed to do to be uh, on the path of righteousness, on, on the path to Shari, um, on, the, on the way of God. And they also started interpreting those religious texts and they filled books and books and books and books and masses of interpretive literature um, full of opinions and debates and arguments and, um, you know, discussions on what are the answers? What should we do? Um, okay, we're supposed to pray. How do we pray? We're supposed to fast. How exactly do we fast? Um, lots of interpretive literature. And that that whole system of jurisprudence is called Sharia. It's not unlike the Jewish halakha, the, the interpretive writings on the religious texts. That's the Sharia. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Simba, uh, the experience you had when you were at Stanford. I, I think you may write about it in the book. Um, anti-Sharia law bills. Here we have, um, for, for those people watching, a, a screenshot of the Southern Poverty Law Center's analysis of, of the rise of anti-Sharia law bills in the United States. Um, you write in your book about a character called David uh, Yerushalmi. Um, here's his um, uh, Wikipedia page. You suggest that uh, Yerushalmi has become... Uh, the symbol um, uh, and one of the main drivers on, on a ban on Sharia law in, in America. Why is Sharia and the law, and, and I think this is one of the, the main reasons behind your book, Demystifying Sharia, why has the banning of Sharia become such a, um, a hot political potato in America? Yeah, so David Yerushalmi is a right-wing lawyer, um, he has said that he has actually said that there's a reason that women and black people were not allowed to vote. Uh, but so he's, you know, I take issue with his statements even before, even without the Islam thing, but he's, um, um he's, uh, he's based in, uh, in the New York area and very much on the right wing, I guess, of the, um, Zionist movement. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah. He is definitely part of the of the loosely connected Islamophobia network in this country. This is a not network. a typical, let, let's be fair here, since we're trying not to generalize about anyone, not a typical Jew, right? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, this has nothing to do with Judaism. I'm, I'm not talking about Judaism at all. This is just, so in, in the United States, um, and also in Europe, but in the United States, there's a loose network of individuals and organizations of all backgrounds um, who are, who it's been documented by several sources but it's a loose network of organizations that uh, foment fear and misinformation about Muslims. And they make a lot of money doing this. So it's profitable. I'm sure some of them believe in what they're doing. Um, they, they truly believe that Muslims are evil. And, and but, but the purpose is to, is to spread misinformation. I don't know if you read Terry Pratchett, Andrew, but Terry Pratchett, at what, in one of those books, he says, um, a lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on. 
So yeah, so you're suggesting that Yerushalmi is a sort of an entrepreneur of hatred, really. (laughs) Well, he's part of this network. And so what happened, and this is by his own admission, what happened in 2010 is he wanted to introduce the idea of a scary Islamic law taking over the United States. And his purpose in doing this was to portray Muslims as, you know, in, in, capable of following American law, somehow needing their own law. Um, He wanted to scare people into thinking that, you know, Islamic law is going to take over the United States and make people wear burqas and all this nonsense. Um, So he he introduced the idea of, quote, Sharia law. And in in order to do that, he actually went to state legislatures and he said, you know what? Sharia law is going to take over the United States unless you pass an anti-Sharia bill. And um, he made a lot of money doing this. Uh, at the last I saw, 14 states had passed anti-Sharia laws. They are a colossal waste of time because no, no religious law can take over our country. Um, and these laws introduced all sorts of other problems. They're unconstitutional. The American Bar Association has come out against them. Um, there was one case that was litigated where the, the law was dismissed. There was one. There was one law in Tennessee that was introduced that would have made it illegal for me to say my prayers, um, because because of the way that the anti-Sharia law. Yeah, was- I, I get this. So, I yeah. mean, it seems absurd, so- and some of these states are clearly absurd. Why write a book um, against an absurdity? Is it is it a real movement, or is it just symbolic of a group of right-wing lunatics who just hate is- Islam and Muslims? Well, I think this is another piece of the of the big picture in which Muslims are misunderstood and vilified. I mean, Noah Feldman at Harvard says that um, that, uh, you know, Islam is the canvas upon which we project our ideas of the horrible and a foil to make us look good. And yeah, that is- Noah's actually been on the show. So, yeah, he's, oh, he's yes. a good fellow. Yeah, definitely. And so he's wrote a wonderful book called The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State. And uh, he's I think he's brilliant. And um, anyway, so 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 I think it's part of the big picture. It's like this this big movement of Islamophobia or you might call it anti-Muslim activism or anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-Muslim hatred. It has elements of racism in it as well. Some people do call it anti-Muslim racism. Uh, racism is a social construct and doesn't have anything to do with skin color. But um, so it's part of this big picture. And um the more it's like the more nails you can put in the coffin against Muslims, the more you can foment prejudice against them. Well, and- you are you are undoing those nails in demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. One of the things I liked about the book, um, uh, uh, Sumbal, is that um, you you explain it in, in in very simple, accessible ways. You're not a a scholar. I mean, you you are in your own way a scholar, but you don't write in a in a in a in a complicated way. One of the things that I found interesting in the book is the relationship between um, the Sharia and Muhammad. Many, I think, many Christians in particular, because of this very close association of Jesus and the Bible, assume this equivalent intimacy behind, between Muhammad the founder, the father of Islam, and, um, and, and, and the Sharia. But you suggest otherwise. Is that fair? Yeah. So, um, you know, Muhammad, when he started preaching, 
his religion, he didn't think of it as a new religion that he was preaching, at least at first. He thought of it as preaching the religion of Abraham, which is the who religion. Who was, uh, just very briefly, who was Muhammad Sumba? Oh, yes. So he was born in the city of Mecca, uh, Mecca in what is now Saudi Arabia. He was born in around 570. He um, was orphaned at a young age, and so social justice was always very important to him. He was born in a clan-based tribal society where the clans took care of people. Um, there was no central government. Um, feuding and tribal raiding was a economic way of life. Um, when he was 40, so about the year 610, he was in a cave and he had his first revelation. He heard a voice. Um, which Muslims believe was actually the voice of the angel Gabriel bringing to him the words of God. And um, he was very unnerved and upset by this um, in the next 23 years. Yeah, 23 years. Um, he received revelations from God, which Muslims believe are, are God speaking through the angel Gabriel and speaking to Muhammad. Muhammad would uh, speak the words out loud. His followers would write them down. And then within about 20 years of his death, all these bits of paper and writings were gathered into one document called the Quran, which means recitation. Right. Uh, so the Quran is, again, with, without wishing to be too vulgar, would, would, would it be fair to describe it as the Bible of, 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 of Islam? Yes, it's definitely the holy book. Uh, it's, it's different in that um, Muslims believe that it is the literal word of God and, you know, spoken to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. Um, it is it is a sh relatively short document and it's in it's in verse. It's an, an unmetered verse. A lot of it rhymes. It's it's poetry. And um, as poetry, it is often elusive instead of very instead of narrative. So for Western eyes, it looks a little odd because it looks like sort of a smattering. Um, A.J. Arbery, who was a, a British translator, um, thought said you have to think of it as a outpouring of divine messages in poetry form rather than. So, so, so we have we have Muhammad, mm -hmm. we have the Quran, and a third piece in this pillar of Islam is uh, Sunnah. Uh, traditions yeah. and practices of, of, of Muhammad. You write about this in the introduction to the book in a very coherent way. How does Sunnah fit into Muhammad and the Quran? So the, the Quran is the primary source for Muslims, the primary source of information and, and um, guidance. The Sunnah is the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. That is an abstract, his words and deeds. The written record of his words and deeds is called the hadith. So Muslims strive to follow the words and deeds of the prophet. Um, but of course that was 1400 years ago and it's hard to know exactly what he said. They tried to preserve exactly what he said, but it's a, it's a hard thing over the centuries. Um, and the written record is, you know, one part history, one part sort of legends, one part um, attitudes of the time. And so you have to take it with a grain of salt. It's um, we believe that the, the, his actual words and deeds were divinely guided, but the written record is fallible because it was recorded by human beings. But these are the two sources: the Quran and the Sunnah are the two sources upon which early Muslims began to um, devise new guidelines for the religion and, and uh, the one of the great 
confusions, I think, amongst non-Muslims is this split between Shia and Sunni, which have nothing to do with the Sunnah. Now that just the two words right. are connected. Um, you write about this in the book too. Why, why is this Shia-Sunni split so important? And, 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 and what new light do you bring in demystifying Sharia to this division, which many Westerners have vulgarized, or many non-Muslims have vulgarized and, and probably got wrong? Yeah, so um, there is a new, a new category which tickles me. It's called Sushi Muslims. And that's a combination of Sunni and Shia mm -hmm. um, for people who don't really identify as either. So about almost 90% of the, of the world's Muslims are Sunni. Um, a little over 10%, uh, like 10 to 15% are Shia. Um, historically, it's not a huge split, it, not along the lines of, say, the Catholic-Protestant split. Um, there's no real theological differences between the two. The difference is one of authority. So when the prophet Muhammad died, there was discussion as to who would lead the community, not, not be a prophet, but just who would lead the community. And the group, one group said that there should be a consensus or an election. The other group said that leadership should stay within the family of the prophet. Um, the group that wanted the family of the prophet, they eventually grew into the Shia. Uh, the group, that, the other group that wanted the elections grew, uh, eventually became the Sunni Muslims. So there are little differences in whether you um, fold your hands when you pray or leave them at your sides, but theologically, there are not a lot of differences between the two. Um, when I was growing up, I went to a mosque with both Sunni and Shia Muslims. My dad grew up in India and he grew, and there were Sunnis and Shia both at his mosque. Um, nobody considered it. There's lots of intermarriages. Right. It's, it's interesting. We had uh, Kim Khatas, the Lebanese-based uh, Dutch journalist on the show recently. She's written a wonderful book called Black Wave, which suggests that, that sh the Sunni-Shia split um, and the violence between Sunni and Shia has been, in some ways, the creation of, of Western policy. She has this triangle she draws in the book, Iran driving Shia, Saudi Arabia drink, uh, dr driving the Sunni community in the United States and many Muslims caught in this triangle. Is that your understanding too, that, that Shia Sunni violence and hatred is a feature of the colonial and post-colonial 20th century? I think historically there was never violence and hatred on that big a level. There was no inquisition. There was nothing like that. There were, of course, um, incidents, right? Incidents of, of oppression, but not on huge lines. Um, the I, I, I don't know what she says, but it looks like it's probably true. It's a um, great book. You should definitely yeah. read it. I, I think you would enjoy it, actually. I think she's quite sympathetic to oh, a lot you. of the arguments you make. Let, let's move on, Sumbal, oh, to the Jake. Oh, sorry, go on. No, and let me just say that um, that the Wahhabi movement, which is a which is what the Saudis are, or, um, the Saudis were founded by the Wahhabis, and they pretty much arose in the 18th century. It's a relatively new movement. Um, Sunni and Shia had always considered each, each other to be valid Muslims. This is really important to know that they're they're not heretics. They're, they each consider each other, uh, the other to be valid Muslims. But the Wahhabis were the first who didn't consider the Shia to be Muslims. And they, of course, founded Saudi Arabia. Um, 
so that was one factor. The other factor is that uh, Iraq, for example, which has both Sunni and Shia, they intermarriage was unremarkable until, as you say, the 2003 invasion of the United States. And suddenly there became... Oh, you mean by the United States? By, uh, sorry, the yes. Yes. That, yes. that was a Freudian era, Sumba. <laughs> um, we, we also had uh, the Turkish scholar recently on the show, Mustafa Akyol, Oh, yes. book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance, in which he's calling for Islam to return to many of the traditions of the medieval age. Are you sympathetic to that? Is there a need for Muslims around the world to rediscover the traditions of tolerance, which um, came particularly in, in, in southern Spain um, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the medieval period? So I I think um, I think um, oh so much to say about this but yes um, what happened um, many of your viewers and listeners may not know but almost ninety percent of Muslim lands were colonized by Western powers for a hundred years or more and that disrupted the development of Islamic law, the modernization of Islamic law. It it dismantled legal institutions. It dismantled re, um, religious educational institutions. And that had a huge impact on the education of Muslims. We, I feel like we as a worldwide community are not as educated in our own religion as we should be, partly because of this disruption under colonization. So Islam was not when Judaism and Christianity, you know, it was sort of modernized in response to the industrial revolution. Islam was not able to because Muslim lands were subjugated. So it's really only since the mid 20th century um, that that these new countries, which were historically not countries, Muslim majority countries, it's only since the, the mid 20th century that they really started to um, you know, emerge again, like start start reevaluating the fiqh, which is the interpretive writings, um, again. And when you're, uh, you know, when you're not an ascendant population, when you're subjugated, it's really hard to find, you know, to find tolerance. It's it's you're just trying to, you're just trying to survive very often. So definitely for the before colonization in Islamic lands. Um, there was tolerance. Norman Daniel is, a, is an English, well, he was an English historian, and he said only Islam was able to effectively tolerate other religions within itself. And again, I'm not saying it was perfect, but there was a pluralism throughout Islamic history um, where they, where other religions were um, uh, not absorbed, but they were acknowledged and people were allowed to continue their, their, um, religious traditions and cultures, you know, the Ottoman Sultan always had a Jewish physician. That was the, the tradition because they considered the Jewish physicians to be the best. Even early on, Christians were able to have high up positions. I think they still are, aren't they, uh, Sumbo? Um, <laughs> let, let's move on to the J word. We haven't mentioned the J word, a word that many people use oh. and misuse. Jihad, you talk about it in the book and you suggest that much of its uses, particularly by people hostile to Islam are completely misunderstanding the word. What does it mean and uh, what does it mean historically and what does it mean today, Jihad? Yeah, so, um, well, Jihad means struggle or strive. And um, it, sometimes it, it's the phrase is strive in the way of God. Now, it doesn't mean holy war. The, the, 
the word for war is separate. It's harb, and it's never combined within the way of God. So jihad is a struggle. Um, by the way, in, in Islam, war is never holy. It's either justified or unjustified. And the Quran, it's really easy to cherry pick uh, verses, but the Quran allows for defensive warfare. The Quran does not allow people to go off and kill whoever they feel like killing. Um, the Quran, when it talks about fighting, it it is in the context of the battles that were taking place in the seventh century, and the Quran is allowing Muhammad and his followers to fight back. Um, jihad has different uh, different versions or different iterations, different incarnations. So jihad means struggle, but there is an internal struggle, which is called the greater jihad, and the external struggle, which is the lesser jihad. So the greater jihad is the struggle to make oneself a better person. That's the internal greater jihad. The external jihad is the struggle to make society a better place. And there are three, three ways that you can do this. You can have a jihad by the word, which is to use your words to make society a better place. This might be like writing letters to the editor. There's jihad by the hands, which is doing good works to make society a better place, like volunteering in a soup kitchen. And then finally, there's jihad by the sword, which is taking up arms in self-defense or to overthrow an oppressor who is not allowing you to practice your religion. Those are the three kinds. Jihad I, uh, not- we, we had recently some about the... Um- I, I'm sure you, I don't know if you know her, but certainly you know her work. Ayan Hersi Ali. Yeah. Was a new book out, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, which suggests that the Muslim uh, immigration to Europe is problematic for, uh, uh, for feminism. She's also the author of Heretic and Infidel, which have been quite critical of traditional I- Islam. What do you make of the of, of, of critics like Ali within Islam? So she's not Muslim and she has no credentials in Islam or Islamic history. But she, Islamic she, history. Cares. she was born into a Muslim family. Yes, but she also was convicted of perjury and her story has been proved to be at least partially untrue. So, um, but, and it's not clear how much of a Muslim she ever was. But, but the fact is that um, a lot of what she said is unsubstantiated. It's not based on any sort of facts. Um, so, for example, this idea that, um, <laughs> I mean, she has actually said that Muslims shouldn't be protected under the U.S. Constitution. She said that, you know, all of Islam should be fought against. So anyway, I don't, she's she's not a scholar. So, um, but a lot of these ideas, again, are myths that have been floating around for a long time. And one of them um, is this idea that Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people, right? I and mean, this is something that people just take for granted without ever looking to see if it's actually true. And so there's a professor at Berkeley. I know you went to Berkeley. There's a professor at Berkeley called uh, named Stephen Fish. And he decided, um, he's a statistician, and he decided, let's just see if this is true or not. And so he looked at countries, he looked at homicide rates, because he said, well, if Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people, then homicide rates and Muslim-majority populations should be higher, right? So he was set out to look to see if they were higher. And what he found is that they're lower, um, consistently lower. So homicide rates in Muslim majority countries and in Muslim majority popul- in Muslim populations are lower. So, um, and yet there's this, you know, unsubstantiated um, myth that Muslims are somehow more violent than other kinds of people. Or well, I mean, This is, this is uh, obviously an ongoing debate. We can't resolve it here. But some people watching will say, 
Well, what about the satanic verses? What about the the death sentence <laughs> on uh, Salman Rushdie for his novel, which satirized Prophet Muhammad? What? How, how how would you make sense of that? And 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 is that being fundamentally misrepresented in the Western media? Well, I think it. You know, for one thing, that was a political act by one person in Islamic history. So, and it's it's reiterated over and over and again. Um, you know, I have to tell you that that there's all kinds of you know bad stuff written about Muslims all the time, and yet you know bookstores are not firebombed by Muslims. Muslims don't. You know, generally go and attack, you know, authors. Um, Khomeini, who issued that so-called fatwa, <clears throat> um, had wanted to build, sorry, wanted to burn his bridges with the West. He was upset because someone Rusty had made fun of him, and that's why he did what he did. The, fat, the a fatwa, by the way, is a non-binding legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar, and it has to follow a methodology. So Khomeini's so-called fatwa didn't follow a methodology. You can't just issue a death sentence. Um, everybody in Islam from the very beginning has a right to a fair trial. You can't just say, go out and kill this person um, because he said something that I don't like. Uh, and Muslims all over the world criticized this fatwa. So Khomeini was an extremist outlier um, who did what he could to achieve power. Um, there's nothing new in somebody using religion to achieve power. Well, your book, Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country, I think is as straight talking and as accessible as, as you are, Sumbal. Uh, your <laughs> previous books were The Muslim Next Door, uh, uh, The Quran Media, and That Veil Thing, and Growing Up Muslim. So you, you've, you've made a career out of... Um, uh, making sense in an accessible way. And one of the things that I was struck with at the end of the book was that you stressed that you are just a, a Californian girl and that <laughs> one of your inspirations for making sense of Islam was a very unusual source, Star Trek, and <laughs> Captain James T. Kirk. What is it about Star Trek that has inspired um, demystifying Sharia? Uh, well, Captain Kirk was my first crush, I have to say. And, uh, you know, what happened is a very interesting thing. Um, I, I grew up watching reruns. And when I wrote my first book, I was amazed at how when I was trying to explain Islam, examples from Star Trek sidled into my consciousness. And it's because Star Trek was about, it was about universal values. It was about you know, it, Star Trek taught us that we can meet aliens. I was like an alien in Southern California when I was growing up. Uh, you know, Star Trek taught us that we can meet aliens and be friends and learn their language, even if it's hard at first, and struggle to understand each other. Um, you know, not not necessarily be suspicious of each other. I, I grew up answering questions about Islam, Andrew, which is why I do what I do. I, I, I wanted to write a book to answer all the questions that people had asked me all my life. Um, and so that's how I started. And you've and, done that. You've done it with a with a lovely new book, uh, Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. The book is out now. Everyone should read it. Anyone who doesn't understand Islam, who has any questions, it's an essential read. You are still in California, uh, Sumba. Yeah. What else should people be reading in these strange times where many of us are still not entirely comfortable going outside, so we need to be reading? In addition to your book, what other books are on your 
um, shelf. I can see lots of books behind you. Yes. Um, yes, we have over a thousand books in my house. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, I felt like since I do serious work with respect to Islam and Muslims, I wanted to read something escapist, but well written and sharp and funny. And and so I have to um, say that I loved reading Jasper Ford. I don't know if you've read Jasper Ford. No, I he's haven't. One, he's one of my favorite authors. He's Welsh. Um, he's uh, written a series um, whose protagonist is named Thursday Next. But <clears throat> this is one of his more recent ones. It's political satire um, in a absurd, fantastical kind of a setting. And um, he's funny. He's he's sharp. I would recommend it to anybody. He's one of my favorite writers. Well, Sambal Ali Karamali, I think you're one of my favorite writers when it comes to making sense <laughs> of Islam. Thank you so much. Keep well. Keep safe. Thank you. And I hope uh, we're going to get some more books uh, from you about this relationship between Star Trek and Islam, <laughs> a fascinating connection. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.